right, well, good morning, everyone. It's great to uh, be back up here after a couple weeks off. Uh, I'm really grateful I was able to uh, get together with some of you as well over the last couple weeks. Um, I really appreciate that time. We broke some bread, we uh, prayed, we searched the scriptures together, and um, truly, um, I'm very thankful and we are blessed family here at the cross, and I'm thankful for each and every one of you. Um, this morning, we're returning to our series, Growing in Grace, a study of Peter's second epistle, and I want to invite you this morning to open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> second Peter chapter 3, and this morning I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 9. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the words of the living and true God. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire and kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." Beloved, Jesus Christ is coming back. Uh, he's coming back, amen, to get his bride, the church. He's coming back to judge this unbelieving world of its sins. He's coming back with his church to rule and reign on this earth. As it says in the book of Revelation, six times, a thousand years, for a thousand years. When that thousand years is ended, Satan will finally and eternally be destroyed as the Lord will throw him into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented. Smell the aroma of this day and night forever and ever. Praise be to God. Beloved, you must know the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ has always lived with an anticipation of the Lord's return. To number one, gather his people. Number two, to destroy the wicked. And three, to establish his glorious kingdom. We live with hope, says the Apostle Paul, as we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing and glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. 
The second coming is the great climax of all redemptive history and is one of the great motivators of our joy, of our service, and of our holiness. The return of Christ is the great event, the great anticipation, the great culmination of the Christian faith. And so, because that is true, and because it has such a tremendous potential for spiritual motivation in the life of the church, it is also true, then, that Satan works very hard to deny the second coming. And if Satan can effectively get the church to become distracted by the things of this world, or as in many cases today, even to deny its reality, then he can remove a rather significant spiritual hope for the body of Christ. We are not then surprised that throughout all the history of the church, it has always had its skeptics and its mockers. And whether it's a false teacher who comes across as some kind of a rational thinker, or it's a demon straight from the pits of hell who wants nothing more than to destroy that blessed hope that is in you, we must utterly reject this teaching as complete heresy. Now I tell you all this because it is very important for you to understand that what Peter is dealing with here in this chapter in the first century, we are still dealing with today. Scoffers of the gospel of Jesus Christ don't want you to talk about a day of judgment. They don't want to, to talk about sin. They want you to go along with what the rest of the world says about it. For you see, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive. The gospel says, no, you are not a good person. In fact, you are a sinner, deservant of hell. And if you are not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you will face the wrath of God on judgment day. Now, if you've been with us through our study of Second Peter, this is now really the climactic point that I've been hinting to all along as we've gone. We've gone through some pretty intense stuff um, through chapters 1 and 2, specifically chapter 2, if you were with us for that. But here in chapter 3, really, I believe we, we get right at the, the root of this thing, the root of the false teacher's heresy and really what's been driving them um, all along. And so Peter takes great care here as he handles this potentially damning and destructive denial of the second coming and the great day of the Lord. Now, remember, Peter is writing this short epistle in an effort to assist the early church to discern and to unmask these false teachers who had entered the church and to equip it with the theological teachings and to remind them of all of their spiritual resources. Uh, go read chapter 1 again if you need refreshing, that is available to you as a believer in Christ Jesus so that you can overcome these deceptions. So as he opens this final chapter, that's what's on Peter's heart. Now as we look at this chapter really as a whole, we could zoom out and we could probably divide it into three sections. The first nine verses focuses on the debate regarding the second coming and future judgment. 
verse 10 affirms that judgment. And then verses 11 through 18 talk about the implications on our conduct because the Lord is returning. How ought we ought to live? Now, the debate in those first nine verses has two sides, and we'll focus one week to each of them. Today, we're going to deal with the side of the false teachers as they argue against the second coming in verses 3 through 4. And then next week, we'll look at Peter's defense. Now, as this whole thing unfolds, it will become very clear to you what this is all about. But to introduce the thought to you, notice the question that is raised in verse 4. Here, the mockers will say, where is the promise of his coming? Or to put it in a more mockful tone, where is Jesus? Where is he? I thought you said he was coming back. I don't see him anywhere, do you? And here we see the false teachers arrogantly denying the return of Christ in the day of the Lord. And therefore, they deny the truthfulness of God's word and the words of Christ himself. Which, by the way, they have read. Because remember, these are false teachers, as we have already noted in the previous verses. They are not outside the church. These are men inside the church. They are your elders, your pastors. They are false teachers. They know the scriptures, but they deny its teaching. Their deception is specifically to contradict the words spoken beforehand, verse 2, by the holy prophets, the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So they are denying what has been written and what has been said. They knew, for example, in Matthew 24, verse 3, when the disciples came to Jesus saying, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Further, they knew that Jesus said down in verse 29 that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They knew Jesus said this. They knew, continuing down in verse 42, that Jesus said, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Verse 44, For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. They knew that Jesus said in John chapter 14, in verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. They knew the testimony of the angels in Acts chapter 1, who said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. 
You saw him go literally and physically in the clouds, and that is how he will return. They knew all of this. They knew that. And so don't false teachers of today. They know that's in the Bible. But they explain it away. And they spiritualize it. Or they say you can't really trust all that's in the scriptures. And yet clearly we see in the text Jesus said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. There's no question that the inspired New Testament writers believe Jesus meant exactly what it is that he said. Alright, so let's take a look at some of these in the back of your uh, bulletin. We're going to look at the scoffer's argument, which takes three forms. We're going to begin with the uh, first one, as the false teacher's first argument is in the form of ridicule. Number one, we see that they will use ridicule. And this starts in verse 3. Peter writes, knows that, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? So this is a prophetic warning to the church. Okay, um, Peter is revealing to us that in the last days, a, a common ploy that will be used by the false teachers is that mockers will come with their mocking. In other words, beloved, they will use intimidation tactics through scoffing and mocking and ridicule. Um, in today's language, it might be through the threat of being canceled or silenced because of your far-right fundamentalist beliefs. You're not one of those Bible-believing fanatics, are you? And you know this kind of intimidation can work in, in this particular issue because it can become, for some, very emotional. When some face this kind of constant intimidation through ridicule and mockery, if you feel like you're being excluded from the people whom you were friends with and co-workers with and, and people you trusted have now turned against you, this is emotional. It becomes like an emotional ridicule. And for some of you, it just becomes too much. Now you say, is that even relevant here to the first century? Oh, very, very. These first century uh, Christians were, uh, you recall in the first Peter book, under extreme persecution. And in the early church, many believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. In their lifetime, they believed the Lord would return. You remember after Jesus' resurrection, the kind of questions that the disciples asked. For example, back in Acts chapter 1 again, um, before Jesus' ascension, they asked things like, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And here we see the disciples' understanding of Messiah. And their understanding was that he would come and he would likely immediately establish the kingdom of God. They didn't understand this going away or dying. And again, Jesus said things like, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And they believed that would be in their lifetime. 
And why not? Their hearts were filled with anticipation of the Lord's return. In fact, as you read through the epistles, there's a certain expectancy that you see. For example, in the language used by the Apostle Paul, notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Right? See? He includes himself, correct? What's he saying? He's saying, when Christ returns, there will be some who are asleep. All right? And that's how believers refer to those who are dead as those who were asleep. But he says, we shall not all sleep. In other words, he's saying, some of us, we will still be alive when the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised, when the Lord returns. He's talking about the Lord's return here. And what about the Thessalonian church? I'm not sure really there was any church that was more expectant of the Lord's imminent return than they were. You read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, uh, verse 10, he identifies them as those who wait for his Son from heaven, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Then in chapter 2, verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians, speaking to the church, Paul says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now the Thessalonian church had a dilemma though, didn't they? You read 1 Thessalonians and 2. Do you remember what they were dealing with? Some within the church there had begun to what? Die, right? Some of their loved ones and family members started to die as the years went on. And you get the sense that they had become incredibly distressed because they thought Jesus would have returned by now. They thought he would have been back by now. And so they began to grieve. Had they been left behind? Did they miss the rapture? What about the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? And what about those who have died? Will, will they still go to heaven? And this must have been incredibly difficult for these early Christians to navigate, not knowing how this whole thing was going to work out. And so... After hearing all this, Paul was prompted to write to the churches there, and we see this heartfelt affection that Paul had for the churches in Thessalonica. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. See, you have hope. Those without Christ have no hope once they've died. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, notice, we, Paul says, we includes himself, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these 
words. Amen. There's no question there was a high level of expectation that Jesus' return was not only imminent, but it was also on the hearts of many believers that it would likely happen in their lifetime. And so, let me share one other text before we move on with you from James chapter 5, verse 8, which says, You too be patient and strengthen your heart, for the coming of the Lord is near. It's at hand. And so the early church lived with that expectancy. They were living with anticipation. The Lord didn't tell them when he was going to come, but he tell, did tell them, be ready, be ready, be ready. And so there were many Christians who had expected the Lord to return, and when he didn't come market, it, it affected them emotionally. Sure it did. They didn't understand it, and their friends were dying, and their loved ones, what about them? And when the mockers then came, and began to ridicule them and capitalize on their disappointments and their downcastness, and they mocked them for their faith, it was effective. And it played with their emotions. Where is he? Is he supposed to be coming back by now? Isn't that what you said? I mean, shouldn't it have happened a long time ago? What about all these people who are dying? How's he going to know where to get them? And so these false teachers were quick to capitalize on their fears and attempted to plant seeds of doubt in them. And so Peter exhorts his readers, and in verse 3, he says, know this, know this. You, you need to understand some things. You've got to understand how these mockers are, are, are going to work. And he goes on to warn them about what their MO is. He says, know this first of all. And by saying, first of all, what he's saying is that what comes next is preeminent. Um, this is the priority. It's a priority that you know this. That in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. You gotta know this. Don't be surprised by this. Don't be unprepared for this. You must know this. Mockers are gonna come. They're gonna try to steal your hope, distract you from your joy, and ultimately destroy your confidence in a literal, physical return of Jesus Christ. Peter knows how critical a strong confidence in Christ's return is. And Christians need to know that Satan is going to make every effort to mock the second coming. And here we are. Here we are sitting 2,000 years later. And when the mockers come along and say, you don't really believe... Jesus is still coming back, do you? You don't believe that, do you? I mean, the folks back in the first century were upset that he didn't return then. And here you are 2,000 years later. Don't you think this whole thing is maybe some big misunderstanding? And maybe for you, man, life's been hard. Life's been difficult, and you've, and you've suffered through some things. You've gone through some things. And when those mockers show up, you're weak. And you feel alone. And you feel like no one's heard what you've said. And your faith has been tested. 
and tried and you've been disappointed and you've longed for Christ's return. You're one of those who have longed for His return every day of your Christian life. And it hasn't happened yet. And, you know, somebody comes along and says, maybe, you know, it's just some spiritual thing. And the kingdom comes, you know, in your heart, and, and that's it, you know. And we just sort of live our life, and you die, and then you go to heaven, and there isn't a coming of Christ, and there's never a kingdom on earth, and there's never really a time of real judgment, and we just kind of pass over all that stuff, and God's just all lovey-dovey, and everyone comes in, and that's how it goes. Peter says, no. No. Let's put it into perspective. And he says, expect it. Mockers are going to come. Mockers with their mocking. Now before we move on, let me also quickly comment on that term, the last days. It's a, a common New Testament phrase that comes out of um, Isaiah chapter 2. And it refers to the era since Christ came the first time until he returns the second time. It's like the two advents and it's that time that's in between. It's the last days. It's been the last days since the Lord Jesus Christ came and they crucified him on the cross and he rose from the dead. The clock's been ticking. The last days were started then. And so we've been in the last days now for, yeah, 2,000 years. 2,000 years. Now, would you notice again in verse 3 that Peter says that mockers will come? He's speaking here in the future tense, and it's prophetic in the sense that from now on and throughout the last days, this will continue to be true. You know, this will continue to be true, and things will continue to get darker and darker, and the last days will become more and more evident. It's like, we're in the last days. Yeah, yeah, we've been there. I'm glad you're awake now. Welcome. And so this whole thing's already been happening, and, and when he wrote this, it's going to continue to happen until the Lord returns. Mockers are going to come. There's going to be mockers. Now, Jesus himself predicted this also. Again, back in that great 24th chapter of Matthew, the Lord warned his followers, saying, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead, look, many astray. Jump down to verse 23. Again, Jesus says, if anyone looks to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The elect cannot be led astray. The point of this is, if possible, they would attempt to try to lure, if possible, even the elect. And so this is a part of the last days. But Christ said, you need to be prepared for it now, 2,000 years ago. And then especially towards the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus warned his followers in advance, there'll be a lot of false doctrine, a lot of false Christ, a lot of false teachers do not believe them. And here in our verses, Peter 
echoes the Lord's warning. So Peter says in the last day, mockers will come with their mocking, and they'll attempt to attack the reality of Christ's return really by intimidating people with ridicule. It isn't an intellectual argument as much as it's an emotional one. As you'll be ridiculed for your faith, you'll be labeled maybe as gullible on one end or a far-right fundamentalist on the other. Anywhere along the spectrum, they'll ridicule you as they play on people's disappointments and feelings. But let's turn to number two, and the second argument is from a place of immorality. Immorality. They are immoral in their actions. Now this is an argument that technically they don't make themselves. Uh, Peter makes it for them based off of their actions. Notice the end of verse 3. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Now, beloved, this is their true motive. Their true motive, that word rendered following after, refers to um, their kind of lifestyle. They're following after their own epithemia, which is, means their own um, lusts and um, sexual passions and desires, fleshly desires, epiothema. Um, now, you'll recall back in uh, chapter 2, Peter has already unmasked these false teachers for who they truly are. Do you remember what characterized them? Go back to uh, chapter 2 for a moment and just start up there at the top in verse 2. We'll just kind of skim through this chapter real quick to remind you of what Peter exposed these false teachers for. You see, we talked about in verse 2 about their sensuality, their sensuality. That's their uh, same thing, that their sexual um, desires of the flesh. Then in verse 10, they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. Same idea. Then in verse 13, it talked about how they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Remember, most wait to get drunk in the, in the evening and carouse with the women. These people, they didn't even care. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Peter calls them stains and blemishes who revel in their deceptions as they carouse with you, as they, they scoot up next to you in church and act like there's, there's nothing going on here. We're, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 14, he said that their eyes are full of adultery. And I told you what that meant. They can't even look at a woman without seeing her as a, a sexual partner, a piece of meat. Verse 14, for they never cease from sin. And then again, down in verse 18, it says they're enticed by fleshly desires, by, again, their sensuality. So, you see, these false teachers who don't know the truth, who do not know God, who hate Christ, have nothing to restrain their flesh. They do not have the Spirit of God. And so Peter describes them as like wild animals. They're like these beasts who are just driven by their passions and have no self-control. And so what do they do? They mock the second coming of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they want to pursue sexual, um, sensual pleasure without accountability, without retribution, without consequence. They deny Christ's return because they hate the thought of any kind of divine retribution. 
That's the bottom line. They want freedom to pursue all kind of lustful pleasures without any fear of future punishment. Their mockery is built on their immorality. And they want an eschatology that fits their conduct. So they develop a theology to permit their perversions. In contrast, believers embrace the fact that the Lord will return and that we will give an account for lives and that He will bestow rewards based on our faithfulness. We also believe God is going to bring to, bring to light all that is hidden in darkness, as 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says, and that God will expose the motives of every man's heart. Those who truly hope in Christ Jesus have an incentive for holy living because they realize that each one of us will give an account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. So whether these false teachers would admit it to it or not, their immorality was really the reason they denied the second coming of Christ as they chose to follow after their own lusts. All right, let's move on to our final point this morning, and we'll just kind of touch on this today, and then next week we'll see how Peter deals with this. Argument number three is from the view of uniformity. This is the uh, philosophy of the false teachers, uniformity. This is their big argument. Now we get into the intellectual. We pass the ridicule and the moral arguments. Now we're coming to their best shot intellectually, okay? And this is what they say. Verse 4. Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's their argument. That's their argument. What are they saying? Saying, well, Jesus will never return. Why? Because He never has. <laughs> That's their logic. It's like saying, I'll never die. Why? Because I never have. <laughs> the false teachers are attempting to uh, rewrite history and their argument is it's been this way ever since the fathers fell asleep this goes on and on and on and what do they mean there by the fathers well every time you see this term the fathers in the New Testament it's a reference back to the um, Old Testament patriarchy and that's what they're really saying they're, 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 they're saying look, go all the way back to the time of Genesis and all continues just as it always has from the beginning of creation. And the heretic's argument basically goes like this. If everything just kind of continues just as it always has from the beginning of creation, meaning that the universe, sure, maybe that was divinely created, but it's now a closed naturalistic system of cause and effects and laws. Nothing can really change or affect what's going on here. We're just kind of spinning around in, earth, uh, in space. Or we could say in some other words, everything just goes on and on as it always has. And therefore, it is impossible for there to be any kind of divine intervention, including the return of Christ. The doctrine of uniformity categorically denies any kind of divine intervention throughout all of world history and opposes such things as a literal six-day creation or a global flood or, you know, any of those things that are in the Bible. Uniformists just kind of just keep reaching back as long as they can just keep adding more and more time to it. They just keep looking back as far as it goes to show immutability as nothing ever changes 
and it's all the slow, continual, gradual, unchanging process. So things like a great divine intervention of a catastrophic judgment upon the earth simply does not happen. Look around. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. And this is their highly intellectual argument and is the philosophy of the sinner. This is the philosophy of the sinner. And what comes from it that we know most in our society? Evolution. Evolution is uniformitarian. What do evolutionists say? Everything just moves along at exactly the same uh, pace. There's no God. There's no creation. They say, we watched it in a, in a lab, and, and it went like this, and so it's always going to just go on like this. And when it got started, and it's here, and then it ended here, and then they just keep adding more and more and more and more time and time and more and more time. We're up to like 4.5 billion years ago now. That's uniformity. It's the philosophy of um, constancy. Like Satan has invented this. This is Satan has invented. Darwin didn't create it. It's right here in your Bible in 2 Peter chapter 3. And what they're saying is, is there's never been judgment. There never will be judgment. There aren't any miracles. It's just natural process, natural process, um, continuity. Um, they would deny that Exodus 14, God parted the Red Sea. They would deny that the sun stood still and the moon stopped in Joshua 10. They would deny that in 2 Kings chapter 20, the shadow of the sundial went back 10 steps. They would deny that God ever stepped in to judge. So why would he do it now? And by the way, the longer that the Lord delays his judgment, the more secure that the mockers feel and the louder that they get on their view of history. And in effect, what they're saying is you can't believe the Bible. The words of the Bible are unreliable. And they look at this little piece of time and they make their conclusion from all of history. And they really just play intellectual mind games for the sake of their lustful passions. They deny spiritual truth. Evolution is the devil's tool to accommodate the immorality of sinners who will not come to God. And the effects of this lie is really devastating. It really is. If Satan can believe, um, Satan can get people to believe the lie of evolution, um, he has cut them off from um, a portion of effective evangelism. Um, before we close this morning, I do want to show you an example of this because um, this falsehood affects our ev evangelism and it demonstrates it for us in Scripture. Um, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14 and we'll close by looking at just a couple verses in the book of Acts. One thing you'll notice if you study the book of Acts is whenever the apostles evangelize those with a Jewish background, they always referred to the scriptures, right? They always referred to the scriptures. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter refers over and over again to the scriptures. He talks about what the prophet Joel said. He refers to um, David, the, the psalmist. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches to the Jews out of the scriptures. He goes and looks at the whole Old Testament. In Acts chapter 8, Philip finds a man in his chariot reading the prophet 
Isaiah and explains to him the scriptures. All right? In chapter 10, we meet a man named Cornelius who was a God-fearing man, and Peter goes and he teaches him about Christ out of the scriptures. He says, the prophets all testifying about him and that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. But he goes back and he looks at the prophets from the Old Testament, the scriptures. When Paul comes on the scene, he would go to the synagogue and he reasoned with them how? Out of the scriptures. But, now listen carefully to this, whenever the gospel was preached to pagans who had no scriptures, who didn't know the scriptures, evangelism oftentimes was based on the God of creation. Creation. Let me show you this through a couple examples just briefly. Uh, background to Acts chapter 14, we see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. They're preaching to a bunch of pagans. And during this encounter, God miraculously heals a man who had been lame since birth. And after the crowd had witnessed what Paul had done, they began shouting that the gods have come down to us in human form. Right? They think Paul and Barnabas are the pagan gods, uh, Zeus and, and Hermes. So these are, are, are pure-blooded pagans. They know zero scripture. So how is Paul to approach them? He has their attention. He's done a miracle. God performed the miracle. But how do you evangelize to a bunch of pagans who don't know the scriptures? Or who, better yet, don't believe in the scriptures? Where do you start? What do you do? Listen carefully. It says right here in verse 15. Men. Men. Why are you doing these things? They're praising them like they're gods. They're not gods. They're men. We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news. Ah. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, how is he going to witness to them? How is he going to approach them with the gospel? Is he going to take them to the Old Testament? No, they don't have the Old Testament. So, so what should he say to them? Notice what he says. We speak about the living God who did what? who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see that? Whenever I witness to someone who doesn't know the Scriptures, who doesn't believe in the Scriptures, who doesn't want to hear about the Scriptures, before I bring them to the foot of the cross, I bring them to the God who created the heavens and the earth and knows the end from the beginning and knitted you in your mother's womb and knows the number of hairs that's on your head. Your life is not an accident. You were not born by chance. Your ancestors are not apes. We, were created, we weren't created by cosmic stardust. God created you intentionally, uniquely, specifically in the image of God. He created you male and female. He created you. And God has blessed you with purpose. Like you surprised, like all these kids are shooting up the place when they're told that you're just an accident. There's absolutely no meaning to life. You're just cosmic slime that's come from an ape. You got maybe 70 years and then you're dead. Wow, I'm looking forward to that life. Turn a couple pages to Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Again, 
we see Paul the evangelist, and he's in Athens on Mars Hill. And he's talking with a bunch of pagan philosophers and these pagan intellectuals. Now, how is he going to approach these guys? Will he bring them first to the scriptures? No, they don't know the scriptures. Notice what he says in verse 22. This is really interesting. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. They were pagans. They were very religious people. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In other words, Paul's saying, let me tell you about the God that you don't know about. <laughs> he is the God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He goes on to say, if you read this, the rest of this chapter, a wonderful chapter from, from that point on, really great. He, he actually says that you were born at this exact time and wherever you're living, you're living in this exact place is all the plan and the design of God. Okay? Read it. Let me show you one last one. Turn to uh, the last book in your Bible, Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, 6 through 7. This is the time of the great tribulation. The church has been raptured up into heaven and God's wrath is raining down upon earth. It's the wrath of the Lamb. But even in judgment, God still reaches out in mercy to His own creation. Listen to this verse 6. Then I saw, this is John, another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal with an eternal gospel. What is this? God sends two angels to earth and they're circling around it proclaiming the eternal gospel to those who do not know the scriptures. The church is gone. Who's to share the gospel with these people? The angel is sharing and it says to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people to the pagan world and what does the angel preach when he preaches the eternal gospel you ask how does he approach these pagans this way verse 7 he said with a loud voice fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who did what who made the heavens and earth and sea and the springs of water. You see, example after example, the approach for the pagan from the viewpoint of creation. Creation. So what do you think Satan wants to convince the world about? Evolution. Evolution. Because then you've got no um, starting point, really, for the pagan. And if Satan can make somebody believe the lie of evolution, then he can significantly hinder our evangelism, our, our evangelism to him. And beloved, let me remind you again, we live in a pagan nation. Our nation at large doesn't know the scriptures. 
Heck, most Christians don't even know the scriptures. And so we have to approach our pagan society from the standpoint of look at this incredible world around you. Does it make any common sense at all that there's not a designer, that there's not an intelligent design, that there's not a creator, God, who made the heavens and the earth and who created you? Can I tell you about who God is? And then we bring them to creation and Adam and Eve, and you can introduce the fall and sin, which then brings us to our need of a Savior. That's how we can evangelize pagans. But if pagans are all convinced that all of this came out of nothing, that the reason we are here is the scientific impossibility that everything came from nothing, well then we're stuck. There's no bridge to get that started. So the false teachers follow these three avenues of attack, ridicule, immorality, and uniformity. They use these things to deny the second coming of Christ to judge the world. And so they intellectualize and philosophize and come up with the scientific impossibility that everything came from nothing. But we know better, don't we? If there's a house, there must be a builder. There's a book, there must be an author. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And listen to this, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He speaks and He holds the universe together. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We know better, don't we, beloved? We know better. Our God not only created everything, He upholds it all by the word of His power, and that God is coming back. He is coming back. That's our sermon for today. Uh, Next week we're going to look at more at Peter's response. If you are in need of prayers this morning, I want to invite you to come forward as we stand and praise God, our cornerstone. Thank you.